Well, good morning. Glad to have you with us this morning. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 23 and verse number 34. Luke chapter 23 and verse number 34. The final statements of even the most ordinary people have a way of fixing themselves firmly in the memories of those who hear them. The words of the dying are always sacred. And the last words of those we love linger in our minds. It is no surprise then that the statements that Jesus made as he was dying on Calvary should have stuck like burrs in the minds of those who were closest to him. What a contrast his passing was with the way in which most people leave this life. Many don't depart with a song in their heart. The noted historian and infidel Edward Gibbons' last words were, all is now lost, finally and irrecoverably lost. All is dark and doubtful. Clarence Darrell, the agnostic lawyer who helped to impose evolution on us, was so distraught as he lay on his deathbed that he asked his law clerk to summon three clergymen. When they arrived, he confessed that he had, he had written and spoken many things against God, and he pleaded with them to intercede with the Almighty on his behalf. David Hume, the famous atheistic philosopher, was a sad sight as he was about to leave this life. His housekeeper, who was with him during those last moments, said that his mental agitation was so great at times as to cause his whole bed to shake. He was so frightened and distraught that he would not allow the lights to be put out even during the night, and he did not want to be left alone even for a few moments. Six hours have passed between the pounding of the first nails into the body of Jesus and the last breath of Jesus on Calvary's cross. During those awful hours, with great expense of effort, Jesus spoke seven times. In order to read the record of all seven of Jesus' statements from the cross, we must not look only in the book of Luke, but we must also look to the parallel accounts of John and Matthew. But since three of those statements are found in Luke, I think it very appropriate to our study of the gospel according to Luke. But I believe that the record of Jesus' seven statements of the cross are not just recorded as a historic fact, but as Jack Hayford says in his little book on that subject, it is given to us to apply to our present moment. So what does Jesus teach us in his statements from the cross in our hour of need? First of all, choose to forgive. Their, expense, their experiences in life that can be very difficult to get over. Has anyone ever hurt you? 
I mean, has anyone ever done something so terrible you think that forgiveness is out of the question? We try to move on, but all we seem to be able to do is exist because our lives are strangled by hurts from the past. So how can we move on when there's something we feel that we can never get over? Think for a moment of all that Jesus has endured for you. He has been beaten probably several times. He has been punched and mocked. He has a crown of thorns jammed onto his head. He has been stripped and marched through the streets of Jerusalem, forced to carry at least the, the cross beam of his cross. He had metal spikes driven through his wrist and through his feet, and he has been left to die. A long and cruel death. Now Jesus looks out over the, over the cross, and at the foot of the cross, he makes his first proclamation. The first statement from the cross was found in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34 when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. People do things that hurt us, and we find it difficult to believe what Jesus said about them, that they do not know what they're doing. Sometimes, to us, it seems that the people who heard it did it with great deliberateness. They seem to know exactly what they're doing, but they just don't care. But in a very real sense, even when a sin is carefully calculated and planned thoroughly and carried out with, the, with great exactness, no one really understands the degree of its terrible damage to people. We don't know how deeply we have hurt others, and those who have hurt us don't know or realize how deeply the pain goes. It's to just such a situation that Jesus speaks and says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Could you do that? How do you forgive the unforgivable? Sometimes we think we don't have to forgive because the offender has never asked our forgiveness and perhaps have never even admitted that they have done anything wrong. And until they ask, we feel we don't have to forgive. But let's look at what Jesus said in another way. For he's saying, Father, forgive them, because they need forgiveness more than they can ever imagine. Or Father, forgive them because they desperately need forgiveness and they don't even know it. We need to note a couple of things about forgiveness. First, forgiveness is not reconciliation. Reconciliation <coughs> takes two people. But the injured party can forgive the offender even without being reconciled to them. Secondly, forgiveness is not condoning or dismissing the offense. <coughs> it does mean 
that we are saying what they did was bad, but we're not saying that it's no big deal. The fact that forgiveness is necessary is a sign that it does matter. Forgiveness recognizes the offense as wrong and forgives in spite of the wrongness. And third, forgiveness is not pardon. Pardon is a legal translation that releases the offender from the legal consequences of their act. But you can forgive a person and still insist on the just punishment for that offense. Forgiveness is the key to not being permanently victimized by those who have hurt us. Forgiveness is born out of my realization of how great a burden of guilt I have been forgiven by Christ and that there is therefore no justification for me for failing to forgive others. In Matthew chapter 6, in verses 14 and 15, we read, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. This morning it could be that God is reminding you of someone you need to forgive. Forgiveness is not easy, but you can choose to forgive. Secondly, remain sensitive to others who are hurting. As we noted in last week's message, as Jesus hung on the cross, he became the subject of debate between the two thieves with whom he was crucified. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 44 recorded it. At first, both of the thieves mocked Jesus. But at some point, one of those thieves allowed reflection upon his own situation to change his viewpoint. He was moved to admit his own guilt and, he, and the justness of his sentence. He also came to the point that he realized that Jesus was indeed who, who he said he was. And he asked Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It is in response to this request that we find in Luke chapter 23 and verse, in verse 43, the second statement of Jesus from the cross. When he said to the second thief, assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In response of Jesus, we see the second lesson on how to respond to others in our own time of pain. We are to encourage others who are struggling or uncertain. While we obviously cannot promise paradise to those around us, we can keep our eyes and ears open for individuals who are experiencing the same struggles as we are. Notice that Jesus was not so inwardly focused that he could not see those around him who were experiencing the same thing that he was. He could have justifiably been focused on his own pain at that moment, but he demonstrated that he was sensitive to those who were around him who were also hurting. Paul tells us 
tells us in the second letter of the church at Corinth, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord our Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we will be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The New Living Translation of those verses says, All praise to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he is the source of every mercy that God comforts us with. He comforts us in order that our troubles, so that we can comfort others. When others are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. God can use the most painful experiences of our past to help us to minister to others. God uses his children who endured difficulty to become a source of strength to others who are experiencing the same trials. The greatest reason that others will listen to us at that point is not our superior spirituality, but the commonality of our mutual struggles. Remain sensitive to others who are hurting. And third, don't lose sight of those who are closest to you. We find in Jesus' third statement, we find it in John chapter 19 and verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and, the, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. If there was ever a person, a time for a person to think only of themselves, surely it is the hour of their death. And yet even in the agony of his final hours on the cross, Jesus thought of others. Probably by this time, Joseph, the man who had acted as Jesus' earthly father, had died. And as the oldest son and the son of any family who was the elder, he, he was expected to care for his widowed mother as best he could. He provides for his mother by requesting that his closest friend care for her. From the cross, Jesus first addressed Mary, his mother. And then he spoke to John, the only one of the 12 disciples who followed him all the way to the cross. Even in the midst of the suffering of the cross, Jesus never lost sight of those who were closest to him. Sometimes in our pain, our given situation, we find that it causes us to lose sight of anyone and anything other than ourselves. Jesus speaks to us through this situation to refuse to allow a present painful situation to dull our sensitivity to the needs of those who depend on us. 
Don't transmit your trauma to them. They may share it with you, but it shouldn't be dumped on them and they shouldn't be saddled with it involuntarily. Don't lose sight of those who are closest to you. And fourth, don't be afraid to take your hard questions to God. Sometimes we tend to think that the words of Jesus were sort of equally dispersed throughout this long, long agonizing hours. I think it much more likely that the first three were spoken within the first half hour on the cross. And for more than five and a half hours, he remained silent. And according to Matthew, it is in the ninth hour or three o'clock in the afternoon. And now at length, Jesus speaks again. The fourth statement of Jesus from the cross here is found in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here Matthew is so taken by what he hears that he re records the very Aramaic words that Jesus spoke. You can almost feel the anguish as Jesus speaks. It is the question of a confused heart. It is the indication of a mind consumed with unsolvable problems. Do you know how it feels to face a problem that you can find no answers to? Do you know what it's like to feel completely depleted? Do you know what it feels like to feel like you cannot go on any further? For some, it's to wake up one morning and find out our marriage was not everything that we thought it would be. For others, they woke up one day and discovered that their career has ended. They have found out their friends are moving away or that their toys no longer satisfied them. You want to give up, but instead you call out to God. And he supplies you with living water, and you find that you can go on. All of us have experienced times when we have moments when we have wondered, why, God? Perhaps what some of us need to understand today is that it is okay for us to pray, my God, why? It is not wrong to take our questions to God to confess our confusion and our bewilderment. The psalmist says in Psalm 142 and verses 1 and 2, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. I pour out to my complaint to him. I declare before him my trouble. When we are mystified by life, when we feel alone and afraid, it's all right to aim our hard questions at God. From Jesus, we discover that he allowed his agony to turn him to prayer. Jesus, even this, in this hour, prayed, my God. He prayed firm in the resolve 
that this was still his God, his relationship. He prayed in faith, even as things looked as bleak as they looked. He knew that the answer to his perplexing question was God. And this is a precious promise to those who have found life bewilderingly hard. Don't be afraid to take your hard questions to God. And fifth, it's all right to acknowledge your need. Some of us really don't like to ask for favors from anyone. But if we do ask anyone for a favor, we would really rather it be from one of our friends. I will hazard to guess that over the years you have sometimes been surprised by the lack of kindness on the part of people who you felt you had the right to expect to help you. But even more surprising are the times when we have experienced kindness from those whom we have felt that we have no right to expect anything at all. The fifth statement from the cross is also found in John's gospel in verse number 28. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Jesus' request for something to drink is a reminder to us that no one is so in control, so spiritually self-sufficient that they do not need the help of others. In the tough times of life, we need the help of other people to clarify our thinking, to enable us to walk on the right path. It's all right to acknowledge your need. And number six, recognize that God is still in control. The sixth statement of Christ on the cross is found a little further along in John's account in verse 30. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. In the Greek language from which the New Testament is translated, it is but one word, tetelestai. It is from the cross that Jesus declared it is finished, it is completed, it is paid in full. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul says, having wiped out the handwriting of writing of the requirements which was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, being nailed it to the cross. I have read that under Roman system justice, when a person was convicted of a crime, his crime and the sentence was recorded on a placard, was nailed to the door of his cell. Upon the completion of the, his sentence, it was taken down, and across the face of that document was written that one word, to Telestai. It has been paid in full. Because Jesus died on the cross. When you accepted that payment of your sins, across the face of the record of your sin was written that one word, which is three words in English, paid in full. Because of the cross, not only are our sins covered, 
but we are given the assurance that nothing we suffer in life is without purpose or without an end. No struggle will be pointless. No struggle would be without an end. No suffering need ever be an ending. The psalmist assures us weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Recognize that God is still in control. And number seven, surrender to God and let it go. At the end of each day, especially the really hard ones, we are tempted to use the night to relive the struggles of that day. What really are our options when we find ourselves in a situation beyond our control? When we find we do not have the capacity to manage the outcome, in whom can we trust? In Luke chapter 23, in verses 44 through 46, we find the seventh and final statement of Christ from the cross. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. And then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his lips. I am now ready to lay hold, to release my hold in life. And I am unafraid to do so because I know that I am placing everything into your hands. Consider this. Death could not take him until he gave his permission. He did not yield to death in weakness. He summoned death to serve him. Augustine said... He gave up his life because he willed it, when he willed it, and as he willed it. The last word from the cross was not the cry of a defeated man, but the proclamation of a triumph. We need to never forget that Jesus went to the cross as a king. He confessed before Pilate that he was a king. The board nailed above his head declared that he was a king. He wore a strange crown, and from the world's viewpoint, he has always been a strange sort of king. But he was, he was and is our king. He paid for our sin, and he gave us victory over death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, for his willingness to voluntarily go to the cross, to pay for sin, not his sin, because he was sinless, but our sin. And because he paid for our sin, we can accept that gift of salvation. He paid a penalty of our 
sin with his blood. Father, help us today to recognize that he has given us victory over death and the grave. And help us to live in the light of that victory. And if there's one here today that has not claimed that gift of salvation that's been offered, then I pray that today might be that day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.